Welcome to Life Together, a podcast for Gresham Bible Church, where we exist to glorify God in being disciples who make disciples of all people through the transforming power of the gospel. On this episode, we discuss the difficult and important topic of spiritual abuse. To help us do that, we have two special guests, our own Dave Martin and also Ken Garrett. Ken is a local pastor and longtime friend of both Dave and Todd. Ken has written a book about spiritual abuse and is a trusted expert on the topic. You'll hear Dave and Ken share their shared story of spiritual abuse and what they've learned along the way. I appreciate Dave and Ken's willingness to have this discussion and their heart for healthy churches that's born out of their own hurt. I trust you'll find this discussion helpful and honest as we seek to be a church family with a gospel culture of grace and truth. Christian Bible Church on this week's podcast. We have two very special guests with us, Dave Martin and Ken Garrett. And Todd and I are here. I'm going to ask some questions and just um, lean into a good but kind of hard conversation. And then, as always, the MVP of the podcast, Jordan Bradley, is here as well. So um, I have some questions we're going to explore together, guys. But why don't you both introduce yourselves um, for Dave, for those at Gresham Bible Church that are newer that maybe haven't had a chance to meet you yet. And then Ken, uh, we'll have you introduce yourself as well first. So, Dave, why don't you just briefly introduce yourself? What should someone know? about you that hasn't met you yet at Gresham Bible Church? I wish I'd done a little more preparing for that question. <laughs> you know, I have a pretty long history by this you do. time in life. So, yeah, and by the way, I'm seeing more and more new faces at GBC that people I haven't met yet, so I really look forward to uh, getting to know more of the people here. I'm one of the old hands at GBC. From, they're from the beginning in 2007, mm-hmm. so not very many of us... Uh, foundation builders uh, left here, but uh, Becky and I really enjoyed the the ride these last 16 years, whatever it's been. We both grew up in Christian homes, went to, met at a Christian college, uh, got married after we graduated from PSU, um, and then embarked on, uh, you know, career, me as a chiropractor, having children, having a couple of kids. And, uh, but we kind of got uh, arrested in mid, uh, mid-career, so to speak, around 1981, 82. We, we were really interested in finding a vital church experience that would challenge us, that would give us a sense of vision and mission. We weren't very satisfied with the church experience we'd had up to that point. Um, and so we first we started a, a church on our own. We we helped to f- found a small house church that we called Emmaus Fellowship, and another guy and I were kind of the two co co pastors, co elders. I don't know what we called ourselves back then, but that was not a very focused uh, effort. It was there was not a lot of deep planning that went into it, not a lot of philosophy of ministry stuff, but it was just a group of people who were looking for something maybe more personal and more meaningful than the church experience they'd been having. In the After that had been going for a short time, we uh, 
came into closer contact with a guy who happened to be my brother-in-law. Actually, he was married to my wife's sister, uh, and his name was Mike. And he had started a house church in 1980, I think on the day that Mount St. Helens erupted, if I remember correctly. Hmm. So we knew Mike through through family connections, but uh, I, as, as I began becoming more acquainted with Mike, I was impressed with his zeal, his knowledge of the Bible. He was a student at Western Seminary, and he had a vision. He was going somewhere, and um, I was I was captivated by that vision. I was thrilled to be offered an opportunity to be trained, to become a disciple maker, to grow in my relationship with God. Long story short, which we'll probably get more into a little bit today, uh, we we kind of signed on. We, we made an exit from our other, or transition from our other uh, house church. And we started in 1982 at what was called Southeast Bible Church at that time. And so we remained there for 14 years, 14 turbulent, exciting scary, chaotic, you name the adjective, um, a lot of highs and lows. And uh, early on in that experience, we met Ken and his wife, Sharon, who came. And uh, we exited that situation in 1996, pretty much broken and hurting and wounded. And it took a while to recover. But uh, we we landed at Good Shepherd Church for a few years to just kind of heal and nurse our wounds and recover our strength. And and then we were looking for something a little smaller where we could be more involved. About that time, Cornerstone Church here in Gresham started. So we became part of the initial group that planted Cornerstone. And uh, a few years into Cornerstone um, came the opportunity with Virgil Brown to start another church plant. And so we looked at that and we thought, hmm, that sounds interesting. Why don't we be part of that? So we've been in on the ground floor of two church plants, Cornerstone and Gresham Bible Church. And it's been a really interesting experience. Uh, We love Gresham Bible. We've built a lot of friendships here. And um, so I retired the last six years or so and have been um, really active in the church all my life, mainly teaching, discipling, mentoring, that kind of thing. Uh, since the retiring, I started a, a network locally here called Mosaics PDX, which is just seeking to unite or pull together people who are interested in in uh, promoting unity in the church, whether it be across uh, ethnic boundaries, denomination, culture, whatever. It, it's just kind of a loose uh, affiliation of of like-minded people who want who want to work to promote more unity within and among churches in the Portland area. So uh, we've been going a little over five years with that, and that's been a meaningful thing for me. It's been uh, a great way to make new friends in places that I never would have gone before, um, because our circles don't always overlap naturally. Um, so this has been a great opportunity for me to get out there and meet people and find out what I do have in common with them, which is, which is really wonderful to just affirm that core of faith in Jesus that we have that allows us to collaborate on certain levels with each other to, to show the unity that we have. So that's that's kind of a yeah. little background and on me. And you're a huge Trailblazers fan. Can I add that? Yeah, I've been with them since the beginning when yes. they— Drafted Jeff Petrie way back in the day, and I think I went to an exhibition game before the very first season of the Blazers. Wow. Yeah. Oh, so great. yeah, I'm 
I'm also a, a just like with Gresham Bible, I've been there from the beginning. <laughs> <Yeah>. Perfect. <laughs> so thankful for you and Becky. And so Gresham Bible Church, we just heard from a founding member of GBC. And now we have a guest who's not part of GBC, but as we continue this discussion, it'll make more sense why we're having this conversation. So Ken Garrett, yes. thank you for being here. Why don't thank you introduce you. yourself to Gresham Bible Church. What should we know about you? And we'll go from there. All right. Well, hello, Gresham Bible Church. And uh, uh, I'm Ken Garrett. I was born and raised in Portland. And uh, other than a little bit of time in the military, I've always lived uh, in Southeast Portland. And uh, after a, and my wife, Sharon, and I have three kids, three daughters, adult daughters, and uh, we got about a half dozen grandkids running around too. Uh, we, uh, um, after the, the military, when we came home in 1984, uh, I immediately got a job as a paramedic and for the next 20 years or so worked as a paramedic in uh, downtown Portland. And near the ending of that time, I, uh, completed seminary and became the pastor of, uh, Grace Bible Church. It was then it's Grace Church now. And in 1874, when it was started, it was uh, first German evangelical and reformed church. And uh, so same congregation, just a bunch of name changes and theology changes and all the (laughs) morphs that go on through the life of a, of a long-term, long-term for Portland congregation. And, uh, um, and I have been downtown as a pastor there uh, ever, ever since. I love my church and uh, just absolutely uh, so in love with them. And, and uh, so, we're happy. Uh, we met, or the reason that I'm here today is, I would imagine, <laughs> is because I was a member of Dave's church. It was Southeast Bible Church when it was founded. It's now it's North Clackamas something. And uh, it was an unhealthy church, abusive. Uh, even Dave and I probably would have a conversation where we use different words to describe it. But I was there for 12 years and I left just a couple months before Dave did. Okay. And I experienced all of the uh, psychological, physical, emotional trauma that comes from an intense uh, experience like that. Uh, I, I certainly still have complex post-traumatic stress disorder to this day, which I think most of us do in some way that left that ministry. Uh, and so uh, as I moved on in ministry and and settled into the church, I uh, began to study more the sociological dynamics of cults and abusive churches, uh, pursued a D-man, a doctorate at Western, and focused my studies on that particular subject matter, and which led me to go to a lot of uh, academia and secular sources to study just cults as a sociological phenomenon, not just abusive churches as a spiritual problem. So that exposed me to some just fascinating research uh, that's gone on and organizations that uh, that function around that. And I became a member of the um, International Cultic Studies Association. Wow. Do you that have a tattoo? A, uh, I'm sorry. <laughs> is there a tattoo that comes with that? No. no. Okay. <laughs> they don't even have coffee mugs. Oh, you know? man. Okay. Uh, really great group of people, mostly East, East Coast oriented, and uh, they work with survivors of all cults. And then they also are, are an academic group for therapists and colleges and teachers and whatnot. And I've been with them for probably 
four or five years and, wow. and uh, speak at their conferences and write for them in some of their publications and things. Um, so out of that... Uh, Again, before you go on, could yes, you sir. explain what's the connection between an abusive church and cultic studies? That That's probably a, sounds weird. Yeah. And it's sh shocking really to a lot of people because uh, uh, just a little side note, I went to the outside sources for study because the only real things I could find, you know, Todd, in in abusive church studies was first off a real reticence to say the word cult. Wow. Because of a flawed evaluation of what a cult is. And that's that's kind of another thing. But that that, that led survivors of those churches to not really know not have a language for what happened to them. And that, that, that was, you know, damaging. And it kind of pushed me into studying a little bit more. The relation between the abusive church and the cult is primarily the, uh, a number of, uh, leadership actions and, and, uh, attitudes and, 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 and personality traits that you will find in, a cultic multi-level marketing group, a an abusive cultic church, wow. a Jehovah's Witness group, an AA meeting that's gone off the rails. I mean, just all through it, there there are specific indicators of the kind of personality trait that leads these things. And leading a church is kind of low-hanging fruit, not because it's easier, but because there's I think there's 350,000 churches in America. Wow. So there's a lot of opportunities for people with a specific kind of malignant personality to enter into their needs being met through that form rather than needing to be a U.S. senator or a president or a general or something. So from one aspect, you'll find common personality flaws in, in the leaders of these organizations, whether they're a church or a rabbi or an imam or, or, a, or a, you know, swami or anything. And then um, on the other side of it, you will also find a very distinct uh, commonality in the trauma experienced by the victims. And uh, so we will probably say more about those kinds of things, but no difference between, and I work with people from Scientology, people from Eastern cults, yoga cults, uh, white supremacy cults. I mean, through the years, I've kind of collected all of that. And then, of course, Christian churches and movements and um, no distinction of experience. Uh, there's, wow. there's, there's variables, you know, a, a polygamist, uh, fundamentalist Latter-day Saint cult produces especially female victims. And so they carry a certain kind of trauma, but, uh, all in all, you'll see the same environment in the cultic, uh, the post-cult community. And that, uh, is what led me, and that's answering your question and then mm -hmm. kind of ending, uh, Mike's wanting me to introduce myself, that led us to establish, my wife and I, and we have a couple of colleagues that work with us now, to establish the uh, Spiritual Abuse Forum for Education. And we chose that name because the acronym is so cool. Safe. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so, yeah, it's safe. And we, um, we meet, now we're at a point where we meet every couple of months at a rented community room at McMiniman's Pub over in North Portland and have an open meeting for survivors of uh, spiritually abusive groups. Wow. And um, I kind of tailored it for a group 
I tailored it as a group that would be open first off so that we wouldn't have that feel of a closed recovery group. You know, the light bulbs swinging from the ceiling and bad coffee and, and all of that stuff. Uh, we, we, yeah, I really wanted something that would be uh, from a community and social aspect, kind of a fun thing to do. So, uh, so it's open for anybody to come anytime. And as, as a result, we have survivors from the groups that I just mentioned a couple of minutes ago. Um, about half of them on any given meeting are from Christian backgrounds. Mm-hmm. And I uh, do counseling with them and, and then uh, some counseling with the survivors of non-Christian groups too, although my role in their life is certainly different than a pastoral role. And we have these meetups, they're an hour and a half, and uh, there's usually a little bit of didactic where I will speak about an aspect of cultic manipulation all over, all across the board, or one of my colleagues will. And then uh, we will ask questions and mainly try to facilitate healthy community. Um, and, and it lasts about an hour and a half. Hmm. And, uh, and it's been, I had 200 people like the Facebook post I made, uh, the Facebook page I created in a week. And it slowed down. Now we've got like 800, I think, seven or 800 that follow us. Wow. But at each meeting, we'll have maybe 15 to 20 people that come and some travel for it and whatnot. So there's kind of a constant revolving door of people who, uh, who participate in that. And that's what I, that's, you know, what I do on kind of on the side from, aside from pastoring. Yeah. Man. Well, Dave and Ken, I so appreciate both of you being willing to come on the podcast. We're going to just enter into a conversation talking about spiritual abuse. I don't want to treat that lightly. We're going to be scratching the surface, but the reason we're going to do it is because I think it'll be helpful for our church to hear the conversation, to hear one of our members, Dave, share. There's a prior episode with Dave and Becky sharing their experience, Dave now, and with Ken as well from your experience and your expertise. But before we go there, um, I'd love to hear a little bit more you, Dave and Ken, you guys have known each other for years. There's also a connection between Todd Miles and Ken Garrett. So Ken, how long have you known Todd? I met Todd in 1997. That's correct. Okay. Yeah. Wow. That's awesome. And what should we know about Todd? Uh, <laughs> what should you know about, uh, Dr. Miles? He, uh, I don't know his status today, but just was a superb athlete as, as a, I didn't know him in high school or college, of course, but uh, watching him go on the court at Jerusalem University with the younger dogs, uh, this guy has tremendous skills That's and also awesome. has completed, you've, you've run a marathon, I think. Yeah. Yeah, so he's not going to tell you about that stuff. But besides no, just loving sports, uh, Todd is is uh, really quite quite talented, and uh, his family is pretty great. His wife is a kick in the pants, and uh, we we love them both. But you know, getting Camille is just uh, a pretty great thing for Sharon and I uh, in 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 the mix. We've uh, ministered together in various ways uh, through the years, and including Todd and Camille opening up their home for the New Life Baptist Church Youth Group, which was about oh, right. I forgot about that five hundred <laughs> Korean refugee children <laughs> in your living room. It, it, was, it, it, it seemed like crazy. that many. I don't. I don't think it was actually five hundred, but yeah, but it was crazy. Yeah. And I don't know how much 
Valium you needed before that ministry. <laughs> <laughs> no, he was just so, I'm joking. He was so calm and cool and it was a great opportunity. And uh, so, yeah, real ministry oriented. So, mm. so it's been a delight to uh, have that experience with Todd and Camille and, and work with them on that. And we used to live across the street from each other. Yeah. And so our, you know, uh, my, my youngest daughter particularly and Todd's daughter have, you know, grew up as a couple of uh, sticky faced little girls running yeah. around. And so, yeah, we go back that way. Wow. I feel honored to be here for real, just the story <laughs> and connectedness and with that as backdrop of what we're going to talk about. That That's awesome. And did Todd have a really good crossover move? I just want to know more scouting reports oh, about yeah. Todd. What's his, his move? inside game was... Oh, yeah, inside game. Yeah, okay. Yeah. I, I watched. <laughs> okay. Uh, but... Yeah, he was okay, taking good to he know. was taking these younger guys to the boards. Yeah, excellent. Yeah. Okay, it's probably some exaggeration there, but <laughs> yeah. but that's okay. I'll take it. Yeah, I'll take it. All right. Um, well, there's no perfect way to enter into a hard, difficult conversation, but we're just going to go there. So, what we want to talk about again is about both you brothers' experience with spiritual abuse, what you've learned, etc. Um, and I'm just going to read this. This is by no, mean ex no means exhaustive, but just for GBC to kind of hear our posture and intent in this conversation, what comes to mind is 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our afflictions so that we may be able may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. So this conversation is meant to honor the Lord and to be safe and honest and also to equip and comfort maybe those in our church or who know someone who have or are experiencing spiritual abuse. So I just don't want to assume that. I just want to say that before we begin. So um, why don't we just go? We'll just start with a few questions and kind of see where it leads. Dave and Ken, why don't you walk it back just a little bit, tee it up a little bit more. What's your experience been with spiritual abuse? You shared briefly, you know, the, the church you started to join. What attracted you to that? And when did you start to know that wasn't uh, a healthy place? So what attracted you and when in the timeline of your experience did any warning lights start to go off? Mm. I, I mentioned earlier briefly that I was attracted by a clear call to commitment mm -hmm. to Jesus, to learn from him, to learn about him, to do as much as I could what he did um, and what he commanded me to do. So, And the core of that was make disciples. Who make disciples sound familiar yep. from our church mission statement? Yeah. So, you know, it was a it was a call with biblical uh, underpinnings. It was uh, clear. It was we you know this this guy knew where he was going, and was inviting others to come along and inviting them to be trained to become part of a a close knit family as well, and. So I think in the early days when we were considering it and when we decided to to join in, um, it was just kind of a thrilling, bracing experience of having some clarity on what it means to be a devoted follower of Jesus. Yep. It means getting trained, getting taught, 
going deeper in relationships with other believers, and then having a vision to share the good news and to eventually plant other churches. And this was part of the original scene that was painted for us. Little did we know that that was really not in the works and maybe never was. It's a Mm -hmm. little hard to know whether that was an honest vision that the founder had or whether it was part of a picture painted to attract people. Uh, but for whatever reason, I think we were, we were drawn to that. And, and, you know, there, there were to me and Ken and I may have little different versions of our experiences there. To me, there were some positive things in the early years where I, I did learn a lot. Um, we, we covered a lot of territory that would be covered in first year seminary, maybe just systematic theology, Bible survey, some Greek, things like that. Um, it's a little hard to say when when I began to have some caution lights, but it wasn't very long before we started becoming aware of some fairly heavy-handed tactics on the on the part of the pastor, just in terms of kind of cornering people in conversations, rebuking them. Rebuking was a pretty big word, mm-hmm. um, but again, it's biblical. Mm-hmm. All Scripture is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. So. That was part of the big four from that verse, you know, rebuking. So, uh, and we all were sinners. We knew that. So we need to be re- rebuked and reproved in order that, so that we could grow. But, uh, that was that rebuking and reproving was always one way. And, uh, looking back, it was, it was highly manipulative and, mm. um, meant to control. Yeah. Uh, it was used as a means of controlling people, keep, keeping them in their place, keeping them as kind of kind of docile followers of this person. So we had misgivings, and those misgivings grew over the years as things became more. But it became more and more obvious that this was not all good. That there were some some heavy-handed tactics being used to psychologically keep people in line and that people were being taken advantage of in different ways, um, financially, psychologically, sexually even, um, in various ways. So there, we had a lot, Becky and I had a lot of kind of heart-to-heart conversations throughout the time there, I think, saying, we, th- we believe God brought us here, and we, mm. we're praying that God will somehow see us through to the other side of these things that we feel are problematic. So should we stay and trust God to see us through? Mm. Or at what point? Will, will there be a point when we say, we just we can't be here anymore? And, um, you know, eventually that time came. Looking back, you always think, well, we should have figured that out earlier. Um, so, But there was this struggle, holding on to what where we thought God had led us and trusting he would lead us through it and get us out on the other side into a better place, or when's it time to just let go and say, we can't do this anymore? And yeah. eventually that's what we did. Okay. Ken, what do you recall? Like what attracted you to that place, to that movement, and then how far into your experience did you start to... Start to wonder. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I was attracted by the avant-garde nature of the ministry. We met in a living room. We focused on discipleship, which I'd never been involved with, but I wanted that. And my wife desperately wanted me to be discipled, to be controlled by a 
a godlier man or something because uh, I was pretty unstable and our marriage was unstable. I was fresh out of the military and uh, had um, I was a, a paramedic in the military and I was a paratrooper and just generally oh, wow. tried to live a very robust experience in there. And um, and I was not transitioning very well into civilian living after that. And the church really appealed to me as a way of keeping that level of intensity and challenge because I did know I wanted ministry. I wanted to preach and I wanted to lead and, and uh, certainly love the Lord and uh, love my wife and wanted, wanted to you know put together a successful life in that way. Um, so we were quite attracted to the church. And I was thinking, Dave, while you were talking, something that really helped you out here. And, and to be married before the cult experience really puts you in a good spot for continuing to be married after the cult experience. Um, I used to be more dogmatic about it. And I would say relationships that begin in the cult, you know, you're, you're attracted to a false person and how can it work? That was wrong because God and marriage was a lot bigger deal than I was given it credit for. And I've learned that. But still, there's something very powerful about having been married before the cult. And it blessed my life and helped my wife and I recover from our experience in it. However, Dave and Becky had a more mature marriage. They'd been together longer. They had not probably lived some of the kinds of lifestyle things that I had, especially as a party and military kind of person. Um, and there was a deeper level of maturity in their marriage. So when you said mm -hmm. Becky and I would have these conversations, Sharon and I never did. Wow. We were afraid of the leaders, but we couldn't admit that to each other. And good grief, we've been married a year or a year and a half. We didn't even talk about much with each other on a good day. So our marriage hit the rocks really without us ever even discussing with each other what our experiences were in the church. Wow. And so that's a difference of experience. But I, th I think Dave and Becky have always, they, and while you were in the church, you were always a more mature couple uh, and, and more established with each other. And I always felt oh, that you, that you, both of you were always wishing we could turn a corner and be better and mm -hmm. put it together. And, and, and a lot of the activities, various criminal activities and things that we, we got into, <laughs> sorry, it, it always, <laughs> to me, it's so normal because it's true. But whenever I say it, Todd's always like criminal. Yeah, I have so many questions right now. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So, yep. uh, I used untoward to, activities. <laughs> I, I remember when we, when we were in seminary and you were kind of detoxing at times, you would come and knock on my door and we'd, 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 we would walk around Pal Butte and, and you would just purge. Todd would need to go to counseling after those walks. <laughs> yeah, that's what I would say. He, would, he would talk about this stuff. I had no categories for it. I had no background. I, I, what, what you described was unimaginable yeah. to me. And, yeah, and, wow. and you would, you'd walk me to the door after this. And, and I remember you would give me a hug and you say, thanks oh, for thanks. talking, man. And, and, and you would walk off just with a the hop in your step and and I would walk into the house just like catatonic just like <laughs> <laughs> what did I just Poor hear God. <laughs> what did I just oh, hear oh man yeah oh anyway. man so uh yeah I, rem I remember that um so as we went through it um the more 
dramatic aspects of the church, the like, like you know, crime or misbehavior or troubles and all that. Um, those get a lot of the attention. I mean, people want, they don't want to hear that, but it puts it in a category of like, okay, there's Jonestown, Waco, Southeast Bible. (laughs) It it puts it in a certain category, but it tends to downplay the good things. Hmm. And they really seemed good at, at, at the very beginning. And, and, um, and also downplay the fact that the entire church didn't roll off the cliff in the ways that I did, and Dave and Becky didn't. And so it's not quite fair to paint it as if we were all, you know, a, a biker club and just all crazy and wild and, and, and you know, something like that. There, there, we had different kinds of people in the yeah. group from different backgrounds. So um, for myself, it's kind of when, when you said, when, do, when did you think it was going bad? It's interesting. By that time, your thinking processes are so tied to your emotional and social well-being that you learn pretty quickly to not think that thought. Wow. Especially if you believe that your leaders have a clairvoyant or spiritual power of reading that thought. Um, or of sensing. I mean, we're, we're all sentient beings, so we sense things about each other. And if you've been complaining about the church or talking with people about it or something like that, and then you have a cup of coffee with your discipler or whatever, it's not exactly, you don't have to be Houdini to, to figure out something's going on. And your discipler, mm. who is more experienced with people work than you could sense where you were at Hmm. the way to avoid the emotional discomfort of that which would usually include that that discomfort would be the fear of uh, a kind of social retribution or rebuke reproof or embarrassment or something is to not let yourself go there and that's the Hmm. layering around the real you that happens consistently as a protective device in these groups. So when did I think that? A long ways into it. Wow. Okay. Okay. I came in 84 and it was probably 92 or 94 when I was really seriously feeling like like, like I was in an unchristian Christian group. I knew Mm. I was a Christian. I never wondered if I was saved or anything. I, I knew I loved Jesus. I knew him. And I also knew the same of my, my friends in the group with me. But a point came where uh, other relationships developed and we could talk about it and, 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 and express the things we were feeling like Dave and Becky had been doing for longer. But when I first felt it was the first time, well, really, when I was challenged to take days off work in order to go to church. Now, that was a slight thing. People take days off to go fishing. I mean, so it's not like the end of the world. But when you're a new guy with a company on a 24 on 48 off work situation and you tell your boss, oh, by the way, um, I'm going to need to get every other, you know, every third Sunday off. It, 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 you, you don't feel the confidence to do that. And the church's willingness to challenge me is how they would put it in that direction as a young married guy getting established, trying to buy a house, wife's pregnant with our first child. That um, expressed the kind of self-centeredness of the ministry and insensitivity to the experience of its members. That's the first time I felt bad. Um, 
Soon after that, out to breakfast with the associate pastor and the senior pastor, they were talking about a girl that I had really recruited, um, you could say invited to church and all of that, but it, but there was such a value on pulling people to the church. It was, a, it was a process of recruitment. And they were talking about her in a way that I didn't like and that, that seemed to demean my efforts of bringing this person to the church and everything. And I brought it up. Dave, guess what happened? It didn't go well. Uh, (laughs) I brought it up. You know, I don't think you're right talking about so-and-so this way. That just doesn't sound, I don't know. I mean, I mean, I'm not expressing myself well at the time. I'm 24 years old. I'm like, I don't know, man. I I don't know. Just kind of, I don't know. Bummer. Seems kind of not right. You know, the way you're talking. Okay. The senior pastor, I don't know if he had an anxiety attack or what. He had to go to the bathroom. And so he got up to go use the restroom and I got nailed by the associate pastor for my unteachability, my pride to challenge as if I knew people. And here I am with two pastors, what I want to be someday. And yet I'm going to tell them how to be a pastor. It, it all morphed into that. So pastor comes back and I profusely apologize for my insensitivity, my my inappropriateness, and not being teachable, not being humble, on and on. And of course, the damage has been done to me while he was in the restroom. So he's a really sweet guy and nice to me and gets it and everything. I know I'm not going to go to many more breakfasts for a time to come, but at least, you know, he was nice about it. The next day in church, it was a Saturday, so the next morning, Sunday, he handed me a three-by-five card with about 15 or so verses from Proverbs to remember. He who separates himself, you know, seeks his own good and uh, um, the fool, like a broken neck beyond all something, just all of the Proverbs verses about the experience of the fool coming to a, a poor ending as a fool. So that those two incidences are the way disciples, abusive discipleship works. And um, so, yeah, I wouldn't wow. have told you something wrong happened to me. I probably would have told you I'm learning how proud I am. But looking back on it, it is criminal to treat anybody that way, and particularly a young man who's giving up his time and exploring your ministry. So, yeah, looking back, I can say I was beginning to have those thoughts then, but sadly, I wasn't talking about it. My wife and I didn't have any kind of a relationship to do that, and I didn't want to fail in her eyes. I didn't want to go home and say, honey, yeah, I had breakfast with the two pastors, and uh, I blew it so badly. (laughs) that he's going to give me 15 verses to, to memorize tomorrow. And, and I'll probably never go to breakfast with him again because I told him I was unhappy with something they said. I didn't want to lay that out to my wife because I didn't want her to see me as a failure hmm. in, as a Christian now that we were going to this high-speed church. And that contributed to a rift in our communication that uh, we really suffered dearly for as the, as the years went on. Wow. Can I ask a, yeah, just like a clarifying question here that I think would be helpful for hopefully your typical GBC person. What's, where is the line where you pass from godly rebuke or confrontation to spiritual abuse? 
Great question. That's a good a good question, and I don't know if I can give you the right answer because I'm an abuse survivor mm-hmm. <laughs> of okay. rebuke and all of that. So it is really hard for me to talk about godly rebuke because there are not a lot that I know of of pastoral New Testament instances of being told God in a godly way rebuke. You know this. Yeah. It does say it. It's there. Sure. The even the the passage that that Dave mentioned mm-hmm. about what Scripture is useful for. Yeah. Um, yeah. Paul, Teaching, rebuking, training. Paul uh, calling on the Corinthian church and rebuking them yes, for their Titus insensitivity. And the Cretans, man, so, rebuke so them severely. And yeah. Yeah. So there's something there. There's, there's something there. Although um, I think Titus was probably rebuking people doing different stuff than me, obviously. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. He's talking about false teachers and liars and, and Cretans. And so the stakes were a little different. Sure. And it was an apostolic commission that, that carried this force with it that we have in an ideological sense mm-hmm. as pastors and with the Holy Spirit, but I'm not quite on board with the idea that as a pastor, I'm balancing rebuking, disciplining that with caring, loving, tenderheartedness. So I'm not as much a subscriber to the idea that there's a thin line between spiritual abuse and healthy discipleship because healthy discipleship is so tenderhearted mm-hmm. and okay. kind. And while there are rebukes, they are the rebukes for the kind of things like, uh, if you keep driving drunk, I am telling you right now, you're not going to drive anymore in this church and we're going to watch you and that. And I'm, this is a rebuke to you. And I've already called the police because you hit your wife. I mean, mm-hmm. that's the kind of hard stuff. So mm-hmm. our stuff it was more getting rebuked for like that breakfast scene. Obviously, Which it sounds wrong. like you were actually in the right for what you were saying. I know. Yeah, I know. Yeah. I wish I could go yeah. back to that breakfast scene and, and yeah. you know, use give him fifteen verses. <laughs> but um, so yeah, Todd, I, I I don't have a clear answer in terms of that, mm-hmm. but I'll just say um, now as a pastor. Um, I view discipling as I practice it more with a constant appeal to the conscience of the people that I'm leading, mm-hmm. and uh, which which is expressed hopefully in my manner toward them and and in my modeling and my conduct of life, but also is expressed with a wide open freedom to bless them if they leave me, and that wasn't. That wasn't here. They they wanted to weed me out and figure out what I would take in order to keep me. Yeah. So the rebuking part um, or reproving part, I'm I, I guess I'm still a little unsettled sure. on it. I don't see myself having produced spiritual growth or facilitated in others through that. And and I, I doubt even Dave and I would say we're on the same sheet about it. For my situation and where I'm at, I get that through different ways. And and um, so I'm not yeah. much of a rebuker. Mm-hmm. Even in a court of law, when I when I have testified against this church, uh, a consistent account of Ken, what was, well, what was Ken like in this, this group was always, well, he was one of the nicer ones. <laughs> so it's, it might just be that I'm yeah. uncomfortable with that. Yeah. I think that's a really good question. How about to kind of, 
um, advance that question yeah. as well. <clears throat> a longer conversation, I'm sure, recommend later multiple books to us. But how would you help us think about a brief, helpful description or definition of spiritual abuse? Like, what is it? Instead of just floating in the air in this conversation, yeah, that's good. we're talking about spiritual abuse. What is it? Yeah. What would you say? And you're the, you're the academic in this conversation. Uh, yeah. yeah. Um, what is spiritual abuse? Well, I'll tell you the, 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 the ideas that are at work and present in all definitions of spiritual abuse, uh, spiritual abuse. The first thing is that it is a system of manipulation and uh, dishonesty, inauthenticity between the leader and the people mm -hmm. that takes, that's the first part, character of the leader that takes part, part uh, takes place in the religious, in the world of religion. Now, under spiritual abuse, there are other horrific abuses that can occur. But um, this is abuse that is uh, covered by and housed by a religious organization. Uh, it could be any religion, but in what we're here talking about is it's, it's housed by the church. And uh, so it's spiritual in its effect and also in its damaging effect. It particularly damages a person's identity and self-identity in a way that uh, lasts usually longer and goes a little deeper because it, it gets to the core of things that they had come to believe about God and about metaphysical <sighs> truth and about the prospects of them having a good life and a good afterlife. The, the, the big questions take place in that sphere. So manipulation, control, and mistreatment, and, and mainly subterfuge, you know, and inauthenticity, deceit, taking place in that realm is like teaching kids math where you give them all the wrong equations and then they, their life is ruined to do math and put their life together. And then, uh, so you you would you would define it as uh, the kind of psychological, emotional abuse that occurs in a religious setting, in which the leader or leadership, and it's usually a leader, extracts the resources mm -hmm. from the membership, while giving nothing back in return. Gotcha. Virtually nothing, but mm -hmm. extracts. It could be physical sexual resources. It could be the resources of their car, their condo, their money, their time, their career. Their retirement whatever. savings. Their retirement savings, okay. which was terrible. They extract and they don't, they don't give back. So that's why Dave said, I don't know if he ever really was going to plant churches. <laughs> and yeah. I, I don't know either, um, but I don't think he had any clue of the way the corruption he tolerated in his life would get worse to where he could not plant a church because he could not give up control of his people. Wow. Um, so he certainly never became a man who could share power to let somebody plant a church. Yeah. Dave, how would you help us think about it? Like, yeah. Well, I was just going to add that. People might ask, listening to this conversation, well, why would anyone stay in a place like that? And I think part of the answer is leaders like the one we're describing are very adept at using the carrot and the stick with people. Mm -hmm. In other words, it's not just all rebuking and bullying and exploiting. There's a lot of really nice stuff um, 
so there's the carrot, you know. Um, there, this person is usually going to can can really turn on the charm, can be tremendously warm and caring, and you want to be in the good graces of this person, especially if they're a powerful, charismatic personality, which often is the case. Um, you want to be as close to the inner circle as you can be, because then you get the benefits of being favored. And that might be money. Just, hey, go out and have a good time. Here's a $100 bill. Or, or let's go on a vacation to Sun River together. Um, we'll, we'll take care of it, you know? So, uh, but I, I think it, it's more, more than the tangible material benefits, which sometimes are pretty, pretty nice. It's just the, the relational draw of being okay with this person that my life is so tied up with, because if I'm not in, with this person on in the good graces, it's a very uncomfortable place to be. Um, you're, you can really be made to yeah. be, f- feel ashamed, guilty mm-hmm. and not know what you should actually confess or repent of mm-hmm. trying to find something to repent of, to get out of the, the penalty box. So, yeah, so there's 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 a lot of uh, and and it's really calibrated by people who are good at this. The carrot and the stick are calibrated to keep people in, under control, getting the resources from them, but also giving them enough benefits to keep them in, keep them with you. Um, I'm just going to ask a question I hadn't thought of ahead of time, but I'm just going to ask: Does a wolf always know he or she's a wolf in that context? Was he a wolf from the get-go or did he think he was a sheep? How would you think? How would you help us think about that kind of thing? And I know it's a loaded question, but I just want to well, go there. I'll, I'll just say briefly and then Ken can throw in his two cents. Okay. I, I don't think they always know. Um, yeah. I mean, look at other people who have fallen, prominent people, Bill Hybels, Ravi Zacharias, down the line. I don't think they started out with intentions to hurt people. Yeah. Um, probably they had really good intentions and wanted to do God's will. But but things happen, you know, when you maybe tune out sources of wisdom and accountability and um, begin to isolate yourself and think more of yourself uh, and in, enjoy the the control that you're able to have over people with the gifts that you have so yeah i don't think most of these wolves i don't think they really probably start out as wolves okay yeah ken what are your thoughts well i i agree with you dave um it takes place on a spectrum um in ministry and and most pastors most people in seminary they are just wonderful people that are envisioning spending a life of service they're, they're not going to make as much money. They're not going to have some of the stability that they might have. And they sometimes leave professions that could have been more lucrative and taken them different places. But they've decided, you know, they want to serve. And they're, it's wonderful. So it's not like when I say that spectrum, like, you know, but they're on a spectrum. <laughs> it's, mm-hmm. it's not like that at all. But if you're looking at the deficient pastor spectrum, you have some people in ministry that just shouldn't be in ministry. They don't have the personality for it. They have they, they themselves have not been mentored. 
and uh, maybe they've gotten where they're at by their skills or their desire or drive. And you usually don't know about them till they're in ministry. And who wants to tell a kid, you know, who's put up his whole life to go to seminary, you know, I really thought about this, Joe, and you shouldn't be here. It's just, <laughs> so, I, and I don't think we could do that. So in the ministry, we see people get themselves in trouble because they, they shouldn't be there. Then we see people get themselves in trouble when sin um, is allowed a foothold and allowed a private little box in the house. And they somehow come to believe it's manageable or it's put away or it's something, something allows it to, to keep, a, keep alive. And that destroys people in, in, in time. And it gets bad. And then we just have the mean-spirited person that, you know, shouldn't be – you wouldn't want him walking your dog, man. I mean, <laughs> but here he is, you know, talking to your kids. Um, and then we get into the world of what are the unreasoning, instinctional predators that you find spoken of in Jude and Second uh, yep. Peter and the pastoral epistles. These guys are different. They're they're wolves in sheep clothing, which is which is really a person who's occupationally a shepherd that wore a wool shepherd's cloak clothing. Different species. Yeah, he, he looked like he was an official union card carrying shepherd. But he just had the uniform on. So um, these guys are on that other spectrum and they go as far and as deep as being sociopathic and, uh, and having uh, the, the diagnosis of a narcissistic personality disorder. And I'm not, a, I can't make that diagnosis, but I would speculate that's Dave and mine's um, background. So... Um, yeah, it's it's kind of all over the thing. So do they know they're that? No. I think you would have to be a, a mature adult, maybe an, I don't know, an Elmer Gantry type, the old book that, or I think you would have to be a man who has been around a little while to see that you've got a you've got a, a good gig you could you could get into here, the religious business or something. But mostly, even the even the real horrible ones, they have so much uh, unprocessed trauma and mm -hmm. uh, family background yeah. things that are just terrible that the ministry almost promises them. And particularly if they've had an intense conversion experience, it promises them a lifelong way to address their moral. Uh, crises. And so they can be really good for bits of time. But uh, over the long haul, they can't sustain fighting off that problem. And, and they uh, become, they might be incipient predators, but they become, as our leaders did, um, absolute predators. And, and so um, that point comes. But before all of that, a point came where they knew they were wrong and they made a decision. It was 1989, if you want to know the year. It was when our congregation changed and a lot of behaviors in the pastors that were private became public because they couldn't live, live with the uh, cognitive dissonance anymore of being one thing in private and one thing in public. So 
we would all start doing things, partying more and all of this. Also, the relationships between men and women and our leaders and wives and women in the church, that started getting a little wonky. And it was done under the explanation of uh, healthy community can handle relationships and friendships between this and all of that. Those are all good words I just used. But the way they were employed yeah. uh, led to such horror in the church. So it's at that point that I very clearly can see, or at least from my perspective, that they knew what they were doing. They'd been rejected by the church community at large in Portland soon after. And they uh, were justifying the they were justifying what they were doing by stating a higher goal and purpose and hope. Um, that's just my take on it. Mm -hmm. it. It reminds me of one of the slogans they had for a while on their website after we had left, was it training teachers for the millennium? Something like that. Just, just kind of pointing oh, to I wasn't the, even there, but I'm embarrassed. The, yeah. Yeah. Kind of the <laughs> exclusivity. They just kind of doubled down on, Okay, we don't we don't need the yeah. greater Christian community in the area because we are the stormtroopers. We are the elite. Yeah. We're the ones who are training the leaders of the, in the millennium for Man. the millennium. I feel nauseous right now. Um, <laughs> how uh, first? Thank you guys for being willing to have this conversation in a way that you feel is safe and appropriate. We're on a podcast, but how has your experience with spiritual abuse affected you? You know, how has that impacted you physically, emotionally, spiritually? Do you still carry, I'm assuming, pain, trauma from this? Like, how has this impacted you? How has it marked you? Um, yeah, I could start. I think the first few years coming out of that situation were really hard. Um, there, was, there were years of decompression recovery for me uh, about with clinical depression where I just really shut down about eight months after we left. I held it together. I didn't know I was holding it together, but I just felt increasingly physically fatigued over those months. And then one day I was at work and I just shut down like a switch flipped. And I went into a period of months of being pretty much paralyzed, uh, not being able to function at all. Mm. Couldn't work, couldn't go to church, could hardly have a coherent conversation. So that was just, you know, it had been a pressure cooker for so long, you know, holding, holding these cognitive dissonant feelings inside, um, and never really being able to express them. And then we get out of that and just kind of like whew, the pressure's off. But then, then you have to deal with the, the fallout. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that, uh, I mean, by God's grace, there was healing that happened. And, and gradually I found my way back into human society and, <laughs> um, and into church life and into participating and serving and so on. Um, but it, it took... Uh, it really took some time, and I, I'm aware that uh, coming out of that, even when we got back involved in church, like at Good Shepherd, we started. I started entering into some leadership, small groups, and taught some classes there, uh, and then got into some kind of one-on-one -on -one relationships with other guys. Me being kind of the older brother to these younger men, and I, I, I think that 
although the relationship, I was able to have a good effect in those relationships and help help some men, I think, become more committed to God. I, I have some regrets looking back at how I still had some carryover of this kind of authoritarian approach of reproving, rebuking telling people what they needed to do if they were an obedient disciple. And uh, I'm, I, I regret, you know, that I, I hurt some people along the way in trying to help them mm-hmm. because I still hadn't really divested myself of some of those habits that I had acquired that I had learned by mimicking um, those who were my leaders. You know, so it, it, takes, it takes a while to um, shed some of those things. Yeah. But I think um, overall, I, I was just thinking about a passage this week and thinking about Ken particularly, but myself too, in 2 Corinthians 9, um, and it's specifically talking about giving financially, but I think I think the principle is broader there. And what, what caught my attention as I think about what God has done in Ken's life and my life and our wives since then, uh, it's just been amazing. It, you know, it starts out, and ironically, this is one of the verses we had to memorize when we were there, you know, um, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, whoever sows um, bountifully will reap bountifully. Each one should give as he has, as he has decided in his heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion because God loves a cheerful giver. And then it goes on to say, though, that um, God who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. And I think God's done that. Hmm. I've seen him do that in Ken's life over the years as Ken Hmm. has grown and gotten education and and developed in his wisdom, his character, had had more and more influence in people's lives and specifically in survivors' lives, you know. And I've seen that in my own life too, that, you know, and then goes Paul goes on to say, you will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your con- contribution for them and for all others, while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Thanks be to God for his, his inexpressible gift. And uh, I, I just see, you know, God being so gracious in in healing us when we were so broken from that experience and when we felt guilty for participating in a, in a dysfunctional culture too, you know, but he forgave us. He put us back on our feet. He gave us work to do. He gave us new relationships, new avenues for ministry. And I, he just enlarged the, the harvest of our righteousness, I think. Um, and, and part of it is because we went through that so that as you referenced earlier, Mike, that we're able to comfort those who are in any <clears throat> distress and this whole area of spiritual abuse. There's a lot of people in distress yeah. that you, if you've been through it, you're able in a unique way to come alongside them and help them heal. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's mm-hmm. uh, initially it, it, it was really painful and hurtful, but We've seen God work his purposes out through it in a really amazing, positive way. Man, God's so gracious, kind. Ken, what, yeah. what would you say? I know that's a big question, but how has <laughs> yeah. it shaped you? 
Well, I want to say I really something I appreciate about Dave. The first sermon I ever preached was in 1986 at the Gospel Union Mission in downtown Portland. And uh, Dave was there and heard it and is the first human being that ever said, you know, I think you could do this, Ken. I think you've got a you've got a good gift of that. And so uh, I still mm. have the tape. I think I was copying Tony Evans or somebody. I, I know <laughs> I heard guy somebody. Yeah, yeah, I know. And I, I was really bringing it to him, you know. But um, yeah, so so you know, that's just one of the really nice things that you know, one that's of the cool. things that helped me. Um, in terms of my experience, yeah, and the effect on me. Yeah, professionally, I'll start with the easy one. Uh, I did not. I was not a good leader. It helped me that I was a training officer as a paramedic, and so I had a day-to-day experience of training medics, That and so that was good for me because out there in that world, you can't be a jerk. You'll get fired. I mean, you, you, you've got to do the right job, right? So it, it, it helped bring me in line a little bit. But um, when I began as a church, I brought a lot of old ideas about leadership into that, and they weren't ideas about I'm going to gather a small group and reprove and change and mold them. It was, I'm going to use my leadership and my speaking ability to gain power and voting power in the church, followers in the church to accomplish the things I'd like to do with this building, this budget, this, you know, that. And so um, I hope I didn't do too much damage in that. Every new pastor loses people through his own failures. And so, you know, I can, I can live with that. But um, I feel that uh, I left the cult, the abusive church, and entered into ministry with a real uh, low level of emotional maturity and and intelligence, uh, not only about myself, but just in relating to people. And I carried that with me for a number of a number of years, and I feel like I've healed and done done well from it. But that was a big thing I took away. Um, we left with two pre-adolescent girls that had been abused in some ways we didn't know about. And our marriage, of course, our marriage was kind of not, not too great. So um, in terms of my role as a father and a husband, uh, it left me very insecure for a long time uh, in terms of my ability to be a, a good one of, of either of those things. Uh, physically, I began having... Uh, well, when you first leave a group like that, where you, especially you lived communally and all that, I began having a lot of uh, just pains and headaches and back problems and insomnia and whatnot. And uh, also uh, alcohol, self-medication. The, the just the, These are things that survivors just kind of you know, go through life with. Um, so uh, that going down the way, I don't know if it resulted in, I can't blame cancer on it, but I got cancer at a pretty young age (laughs) and, and I was 47 and I should have, anyway, I, I've just wondered about some of those things. Um, emotionally I've had an anxiety disorder and, and depression and, uh, I take medicine for that and it's never been debilitating to me, but I wasn't quite that way before the cult you know, before that experience. So I carried that out and, and with some help, I, I really do fine uh, about that. And then like every, every survivor of, in, of almost any kind of abuse I can think of, 
I carried uh, shame and guilt and depression out with me and, and anger. Anger's not so bad because you, you really should be angry at a lot of this stuff. The guilt you can confess and say you're sorry and move on. Uh, the depression you can get help with, but the shame, you know, the, the, the experience of feeling that something is flawed about you because of something either you did under someone's leadership or something somebody did to you, uh, the, to carry a sense of being flawed, that dogged me for a, a long time that I believed kept me as kind of an outlier in various groups and organizations and whatnot, feeling a little insecure, jumping in to be close with people. And, uh, and I, th I think those are some social things that I carried out with me that, uh, that I had to work through over the last 25, whatever, or whatever years. Yeah. And that's wow. a very common experience with survivors of this. Wow with, I mean, there's so much we could talk about. Thank you guys for your willingness to have this conversation on a podcast. Um, this is probably too high level of a question, but I want to go there. What encouragements would you give for someone who maybe has experienced spiritual abuse, but hasn't known how to process it or knows someone, a loved one or a friend that has experienced it and needs help? Like what gospel encouragements would you give? What resources would you recommend? Again, you brothers have lived this and you have a lot of experience and expertise to share. I just want to give you an opportunity um, to share that. What counsel encouragement would you give? Um, well, the first thing that every survivor needs after this, of spiritual abuse particularly, is healthy community. And by that, it can just be a healthy friendship with anybody, but healthy healthy someone who walks around pal butte with you and just don't listen exactly <laughs> yes yeah, yeah. <laughs> someone who goes to israel with you and and uh <laughs> you know and hangs out yeah exactly a healthy yeah. relational experience and uh there's ways that we fail as christians in that because we tend to tell people oh you're spiritual abuse you need to go to the peterson small group every wednesday night and share your guts and you, you'll be fine <laughs> and and so i was gonna i was gonna say because a lot of people in the, the uh, victims of that are gonna be hesitant to be around absolutely so yeah. what do you do yeah yeah and a lot of them have had a very heavy intimate personal relationship thing. They've lost all their friends. They don't want to make a bunch of other ones that they're going to lose. So what you do to help somebody like that is you provide an environment of acceptance at a safe distance. So you don't evangelize them. You know, don't invite them to a Bible study where you're going to exegete, you know, Leviticus for 6 months and really draw close as you do that. You're not. And and they might they might know more of Leviticus than you. Um, you offer emotional support and kindness. You model that. And they'll watch how you treat other people m before they have anything to do with you. They'll see what kind of person you are and how you treat marginalized people and whatnot. And when you model that, then you kind of set a tone for healthy community. And then, and, and then that moving to that, your, your church, you care more about it becoming a healthy, relationally healthy sociological community than you do about it being the best doctrinally pure church or the best of something or, or any of the things that we need, but that we tend to put in an order that doesn't serve us. We need to become 
in an emotionally healthy church that speaks openly and regularly about abuse issues so that we can welcome and give safe distance to the abuse survivor and let them be anonymous, let them be as distant, tell them, well, I'll tell you what, why don't you just come to church every month? Why don't you come once a month? Can't handle it every week, but you want to be here, but you can't. Why don't you just come when you want to? And I'd love to see you once a month. I mean, for us to demonstrate that kind of gracious relaxedness is important for a healthy community. And then secondly, they need information. They need vetted, solid information. And what I learned as I went down that road was that at that time, now there's wonderful books now about this stuff, but at that time, the primary books that you could get about this issue were kind of targeted devotional guides. There's a couple out there that talked about really nasty, bad churches that, you know, studying and they're good books. Uh, uh, Enroth wrote a couple and uh, so they're good books, but um, you need more to understand what happened to you from a, a, a responsible, academic-oriented thing. You need to understand you were hurt by a master, a predator. Of course you were recruited. Everybody's liable to this. And you need to understand what happened to you from a responsible source. And so that's what I would say in terms of the experience of the people and then what churches need is how churches can serve them is first of all, to just be a healthy and loving, uh, gracious community. And then either you refer them to somebody who knows about this stuff that, that kind of happens with me a lot and I'll meet with people or zoom and or whatever. Um, or you get enough of a working knowledge of it that you can sit down and go, well, you know, there's some things we should look at here that I think you'll see you're not so alone in this. So, Thank you. That's helpful. Dave, what would you say? What encouragements or counsel would you give? I think a lot of people who come out of abusive and cultic environments are very much driven by fear. That's been a common denominator. You know, it's as much as your church might say, we're here to honor God, obey God, follow God. On the ground, it's really not that as much as it is, I need to stay in line with the leader. I need to stay in the good graces of the leader mm. and fear, you know, if, if I don't, there will be consequences. And so it's this kind of double standard of saying one thing. Uh, and so you can have a completely orthodox set of teachings and you can have good sermons and good, uh, good curricula things like that in a in a church like that but the if the dynamic is the abusive dynamic we've been talking about then people who come out of those situations are have been driven by fear and so i think it's really important if you talking with those people as ken said you know give them a chance give them a safe place to to talk and to uh, purge like yeah. Ken did with Todd, you know, and uh, in a non-judgmental, just uh, accepting way, but but also to help them kind of recast their view of God. You know, I just think mm -hmm. of the relational ways that Jesus talked about uh, what, inviting us into his yoke. Whenever I picture that yoke in Matthew 11, I, I see myself side by side with Jesus, mm -hmm. both pulling the yoke together. And of course, he's the one who 
tells us where we're going, but it's kind of an intimate thing when you're in in a yoke side by side. It's pretty close contact. Or in John 14, when he talks about loving him, the Father, we, I'll manifest myself to you, and the Father and I will make our home with you, you know. And, and the way he talks so affectionately about in John 17 in his prayer for his disciples, I would just want to be with them, and we can all share in the glory that you gave me and that I passed on to them, you know. So it's just such a paradigm shift from uh, a life run by fear of doing or saying the wrong thing and a life that's motivated by love, Mm. you know? Good word. And I think people coming out of those situations, we just can never underestimate their need to hear that, to to see that God Mm. who who, who is the real God. Yeah. Thank you. How about maybe a closing question just in terms of like equipping for someone who's interested in this topic or is trying to grow and helping people? What books or resources would you point them to? And Ken, feel free to share some of your own. Um, what, 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 what would you say? Um, I would say um, if you want to heal from this, I would say uh, – Books that emphasize uh, grace as a, you know, not as a nice part of all of those wonderful things about God, but as a central core reality of this particular age of that we're in. Hmm. And um, so counselors, therapists, and and particularly spiritual pastors. Charles Jefferson wrote 120 years ago about leading God's flock, and it is a wonderful, tenderhearted book. Um, that's wonderful. Uh, and, and, you know, people with a, with a deep pastoral concern uh, for people, you know, there are people that write uh, apologetic books that are out there going to war for particular ideas and and whatnot. Um, I found very few people really finding sustained healing after spiritual abuse through that, but finding a, a a writer or leader that speaks with that out of that kind of uh, love and graciousness uh, is very important. So I like him. Eugene Peterson was very important to me in terms of uh, my spiritual life, you know, with, with God and, and that. And um, that's, that's some important places for a person to go. And then in terms of the information, um, the book I wrote, which is called uh, um, House of, in the House of Friends, Recognizing and and Recovering from Spiritual Abuse in Christian Churches. And I wrote it to be um, a short book which could be handed to a person leaving this kind of group and they could be done with it in about an hour and get an idea of what happened to them because they're not ready for counseling. They're probably not going to go to church they, they feel like they did something wrong. And I mean, there's all kinds of things. But so I, I wrote it for that for that reason. So I think books like that, that are not the big, thick academic things. So I like I, I like that idea. And there's there's some good ones. Bully Pulpit's a wonderful one at understanding abusive pastors. That's an, a new book that's that's um, out and uh, and an important one. And then if you want to take a peek at the dynamics of the church that you were hurt in. And I bring this up because it really resonates with abuse survivors. 
go online and Google Robert Lifton, eight qualities of thought reform or whatever. Uh, he was an Air Force psychiatrist that studied a uh, prisoner of war in North Korea and China, developed the theory of eight qualities of narcissistic to a totalist abuse, uh, which is it's called brainwashing, but that's not a good term. But that idea of, of changing how a person thinks, which is what happens in the cult. And his eight qualities, you'll get a million hits back because he is the father of modern studies in that. And uh, um, if you were to do, read anything by Lifton, especially his, his seminal work. But if you just went to, to look at those eight qualities, you'll be going, oh, okay, I don't see them all. And it's not a Christian book. But you'll you'll say, okay, maybe maybe I don't see them all, but man, do I see this and this and this fear of leaving, control of information, uh, cult of confession, exposing your life to people, extraction of your personal resources and whatnot. You'll get it, and that is the thing that's been missed in much of Christian attempts hmm. to help these people, as we've been unable to admit, like Dave kind of mentioned, or see that uh, a, a church can function as a cult. And if you want to go out on a limb, even be a cult. And once you get that information, you understand what happened to you. And then you can go, okay, I need this kind of help. And maybe I can move on. Wow. Ooh, that's a lot to digest right there. <laughs> yeah. Probably I'm, too much. Sorry. <laughs> no, no, no. I'm just thinking I'm going to be Googling that later today. So thanks for sharing that. Um, I know it's been a longer podcast episode, but an important discussion and one that's important we talk about as a church. Just want to give you guys kind of the floor. Any closing thoughts, comments, anything you want to share before we wrap it up? I would just add that um, some people who survive abuse are more like me, kind of analytical and interested in reading a lot about it, reading a lot of books about spiritual abuse, reading stories of what's happening, uh, other people's experiences that just helps, helps me kind of put, put my own experience in better context and understand the whole phenomenon and, and therefore be maybe be, be able to help people better. On the other hand, some people are so wounded uh, and traumatized that they don't want to have anything to do with studying the subject or uh, going mm -hmm. back to church mm -hmm. or being around other survivors sometimes, you know. It's just they, they just want to get as far away as they can from that trauma. Uh, so there's a, whole, there's a whole range, you know, and I, the books Ken mentioned are great. His book is wonderful. I would re really recommend it. Um, there, but and there are other resources. There's a there's a journalist, Christian journalist named Julie Royce, who has a website and a podcast, and she's interviewed Ken, and uh, she she does a lot of uh, investigative work of different cultic and spiritual abuse abusive situations. And if if you're interested in hearing people's experiences, she has those kind of people on the podcast all the time. Some of them have written books about their experience, but um, you know there so. But it, for me, I'm a sucker for a documentary about Waco or Jim Jones or fundamentalist polygamous Mormon community. Escaping Scientology. I just I eat that stuff up, but that's not for everybody. But, I, I, you know, I just think, yeah, a loving community is so important. And, and just to give those people every opportunity to to talk about 
their experience. Just be a good listener and then just, you know, introduce them to the grace and love of God and help help them along the way of reframing their understanding that God is not this scary person shaking a finger and threatening, but, you know, just the opposite. Thank you. Yeah. Um, yeah, as far as a takeaway, I think all survivors have different experiences and different needs. Some survivors of religious, aberrant religious groups and abusive groups, they need to get their doctrine right. Mm. It wasn't me, but some do. And and it is healing for them, healing for them. Um, I needed to understand the character and nature of Jesus as a good shepherd. Wow. Now, my model of being a good sheep, I'll, I'll probably speak better as a wandering sheep. My model of the wandering sheep is uh, wandered away because that's what sheep do. You know, none of us have ever been shepherds, but there we go. Hey, wander, that's what sheep do. One clump of weed to another. But really, sheep are taken away. They're snatched by predators. Sheep don't usually wander alone. They usually wander in groups. They do get lost and they have troubles that keep, make them unable to keep up with the herd. And they get driven away and they get neglected like a widow neglecting and dropping one of her 10 gold coins or something. There's all kinds of reasons people end up on the hillsides wandering away. And I needed to understand the uh, passion and acceptance and, and uh, love of Jesus Christ for spiritual abuse survivors. Mm-hmm. I, I needed that because I was very prone to jump right into a world where I started working real hard right away. I challenged beginning Greek at seminary. I wanted to get right. I wanted to get advanced, you know, and I, I just I was going to jump right into that harness. And uh, I, I was unable to see myself for my need. But what I needed was to envision that I was so worthy and loved by Jesus that he had actually plucked me out of a dangerous place and then actually let me end up doing what I dreamed of doing anyway. And I wow. hope I do it better than I would have. But I needed to get back in touch with that aspect. Mm-hmm. That's beautiful. That's a good note to close on. Um, again, thank you guys for having this conversation. I think it's an important one and one to equip our church and give us categories and language about. And um, Ken, thank you for coming all the way out here thank to Gresham to have me. this conversation. Sure. And I love seeing you three guys here together sharing this story. So, all right, I'm Gresham Bible Church. Hope this has been a helpful discussion. If it brings up any comments or questions, you just want to sit down and talk more, that'd be great as the whole point of this podcast. Again, I say this often because we mean it. It's not just to give us content, but it's to really accelerate real life face-to-face conversations about important stuff in the life of our church. So um, feel free to reach out. You can do that by emailing me at mike at greshambible.org. Until next time. Thanks. Thanks.